0: There is a Thanksgiving carol. It's actually called The New England Boys' Song About Thanksgiving Day. You know it as Over the river and through the woods To grandfather's house we go. And it's actually originally Grandfather's house, Not grandmother's house. Yay, patriarchal songwriting. (laughs) The horse knows the way to carry the sleigh through the white and drifted snow over the river and through the wood to grandfather's house away we would not stop for doll or top for tis Thanksgiving Day. And there are actually eight different stanzas. You can go online, look it up, sing it all day tomorrow if you'd like to. I won't, but you can. I don't know why this song kept coming to mind over the last week, granted Thanksgiving is tomorrow, but as I was reading and thinking through, and, and today reading through Acts chapter 20, it was as though I could hear Paul on his missionary journey singing over the river and through the sea and back on the boat I go. Yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of a traveler song. And Paul traveled many, many, many miles on his circuitous journeys through Syria and Asia and Europe. And some think not only as far as Rome, but perhaps even as far as Spain. And as Acts chapter 20 opens, we find him making his way to the north and to the west to the Gentile churches on a very specific quest. Verse 1 picks up, after the uproar had ceased, remember the uproar, last Wednesday night we talked about this, chapter 19, the uproar in Ephesus. The riot that took place. Everywhere he went, there was an uproar. And Paul obviously gets the picture that it's time to move on. He's caused enough trouble. So after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. That is, on up into Europe. And when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation... He came to Greece. For you Bible students, literally, that's Corinth. He comes into Greece and he goes to the city of Corinth here in verse 2, and this is where we're pretty sure he wrote his letter to the Romans, to the church at Rome. Now that would make sense because Corinth was an exceedingly wicked city. And it was worse than Port Townsend. Corinth was an evil place. It was a worldly place, a pagan place. Paul's in that place when he begins to pen the letter to the church at Rome and he begins to talk about the depravity of man. Those first three chapters of Romans, and when we get to Romans, we'll see that. We'll try to refer back to these places where Paul perhaps was writing. But it makes absolute sense that the Spirit begins to download into Paul as he's looking at the depravity. The Spirit begins to say, man is depraved, and there is only one way for man, for woman to be saved, and that is by the grace of God alone. So Paul is there in Greece in Corinth, verse 3, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return to Macedonia. His original intent was to hop on a boat and take the long journey by sea all the way back to Syria and to his his home church there in Antioch and ultimately make his way down to Jerusalem, probably for Passover. He wanted to get back for Passover. He would miss that. But the seaward route was traveled by many Jews. In fact, all the Jews in that area would probably be on the same boat heading back for the same Jewish feast. And Paul hears that there are a few of them who plan on the way to do him in. Probably at night somewhere out there in the Aegean Sea to get hold of Paul and throw him overboard and be done with this Gentile visiting zealot once and for all. Verse 4. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia, some great names for young moms trying to decide (laughs) what to name their kids. But these had gone ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, so Luke is with him too. Okay, I point that back out to you. He is now speaking us and we. Luke, beginning in chapter 20, has joined Paul and will stay with Paul from here on out. They were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, so they missed Passover. At least in Jerusalem, they would have had it in Philippi. We came to them at Troas within five days, and we stayed there seven days now this chapter is, is so cool because this is a chapter packed with fellowship. Everywhere Paul goes, there is fellowship. And the fellowship is sweet, and it's encouraging, and it's cool to watch. And as a matter of fact, Paul fellowshiped on the journey. That's the first thing to note, he fellowshiped on the journey. We see this list of, of guys Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, and Luke. All of these friends of Paul. Now, Sopater from Berea and Secundus from Thessalonica, we don't know anything more about. They're just listed here. But that alone is pretty cool. My name's not in the Bible. Joe, yours isn't in the Bible. Now, Joseph, but we know it wasn't you. Well, it wasn't. Otherwise, no, I'm going to leave you alone. Where am I? Oh, so all these guys are traveling with Paul, and we don't know about a couple of these, but Paul will later call Aristarchus his fellow prisoner and fellow worker. I'm going to put all the verses up there. Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus is his fellow prisoner. Philemon, verse 24, He's called his fellow worker. So Paul has a real fondness for Aristarchus. Then we see it first as he's traveling with Paul here through Macedonia and back to the east. And he mentions Gaius in Romans 16, 23, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 14. He'll mention Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4, verse 20. So these guys become friends of Paul. These guys will be with him and are part of his network. He calls Tychicus. His beloved brother and faithful minister, Ephesians six twenty one and Colossians four seven. And finally, he mentions Timothy, Timothy, who Paul will refer to no less than eighteen times. Paul loves Timothy. He calls him in First Timothy chapter one verse two, "My true child in the faith." He calls him in 2 Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 2, My beloved son. Paul adores Timothy, his young protege. When Paul sends the letter to the Ephesian church, that letter will go to that church and to Timothy, who at that point is pastoring in Ephesus. And both 1st and 2nd Timothy are letters written to this young pastor on how to pastor. I still refer to them when I'm confused about pastoring or when I'm struggling with ministry. I'll go back to 1st or 2nd Timothy just to see what Paul says to young Pastor Timothy. And it's so encouraging. But he fellowships with all these guys on the journey. And I'm reminded that fellowship on the journey always brings us close. It connects us in ways that nothing else does. And I say this with with compassion and love and, and wide open arms that outside of the church, people do not understand the fellowship of the church. Because when you walk the journey of Christ, it is a different deal. And if you, by the way, if you're a part of the bridge and you feel like you're outside of fellowship, I love you and there's only one person to blame. And it's not the church. When I am outside of fellowship, it's because I have chosen to be. It's because I'm not moving intentionally in fellowship. Now, we will play games with ourselves saying, well, that church is not welcoming or those people are not open to me. And and the reality is I haven't tried. I don't say that in judgment. I'm just saying, come into the fellowship. If you feel outside, come in. Well, how do I do that? Show up early and wander around and talk to people. Well, that's uncomfortable and weird. I know. It's called Christianity. Get used to it. (laughs) The fellowship of believers together on this journey, it's a marvelous thing. And it has been my whole life. And Paul would write to the Philippian church, chapter 2, verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Get on the same page, gang. Love each other. Care about each other. And be about the Gospel, Paul would say. That's fellowship. And on this eve of Thanksgiving, I am honestly thankful So very thankful for this fellowship. Now, what about this weird plot to kill Paul? It's sadly ironic. Because there are Jews who want him dead. They're plotting to kill him. Obviously, you know, he's going to go now with the guys and take a different route and not get on the boat. But the reason that Paul had taken out this extra quest within his third missionary journey. The reason why he's moving about back there, it was in verse 2, he went through the districts and he gave them much exhortation, all through Macedonia, he's moving around. What's Paul up to? He was about collecting funds for the Jews in Jerusalem who are under hard times. He was going out church to church, to Gentile churches, collecting money, to take back to the church in Jerusalem to be distributed among the primarily Jewish Christians and truly anyone who they saw fit to give help to and aid to. Agabus the prophet prophesied about a famine that was taking place at this time in Judea. Acts chapter 11 verse 28. We saw that. And so Paul is gathering, collecting, going church to church. This is why he writes to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches in Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as you may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And then he says... And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. And that's what's happening. In fact, all these guys, the reason for this large fellowship of men traveling together was accountability. They're taking the funds from the Gentile church to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Think about Paul's motives here. Gentiles meeting the need of Jews. Now the walls are coming down between Jews and Gentiles, but there are still plenty of them to be found, even to this day, sadly. For our part, as a church fellowship, we love Israel. We will stand with Israel. We have a heart and a passion for God's people, the Jews. And if anyone has a different opinion than that in this fellowship, I suggest you read your scriptures. And so we love Israel. We are honestly often loved by the Jewish people. When we go to Israel, it's remarkable how thankful they are that we're there. But that's not always the case. And especially during these days where Paul's traveling, there was that deep divide between Jew and Gentile, even within the church. And so Paul is trying to bridge the gap. And he's trying to say, hey, look, let's help the Jewish church. Let's let the Jews see the generosity of the Gentiles and realize we really all are one body in Christ Jesus. So he gathers the guys. Now, I, this remains throughout Paul's ministry his greatest heartache. And that is his fellow Jews. I've read this to you before, but it stuns me. Romans 9, verse 2, he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul went so far as to say, if I thought my cursing would be their salvation, I would say, curse me for all eternity. Send me to hell. If it would mean that Israel could be saved. That's how much he loved his people. That's how much it tore at Paul's heart. The the apostle who would say, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Had unceasing sorrow. So deep was his love for Israel. Well... Paul's entourage for the journey was now made up of those bringing funds to Jerusalem. Verse 7, And on the first day of the week when we gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. I thought we'd try that out tonight. (laughs) And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus. You remember Eutychus. We studied this on Sunday. His name means fortunate. (laughs) Not so much, at least at first, because he was sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep, as Paul kept on talking, and he was overcome by sleep, fell down from the third floor, and was picked up dead, necros, a corpse. But when Paul went down, he fell upon him, he embraced him and said, do not be troubled, his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, And I thought we'd try that tonight. (laughs) And then he left. Then they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Now, I won't go back over this whole thing. We talked about it on Sunday. Tryptophan at Troas. And if you weren't here for that teaching, I would suggest you hear it. Listen to it online. But we are like Eutychus. I'll just say that much. We are like Eutychus. We hear the word... Right, And some get drowsy. Some don't understand the Word. I recall before giving my life to Jesus, the Bible was a big, massive, hard-to-understand book. How would I ever get through it? How would I ever understand it? It was for the old men who studied, who poured over these things hour after hour through the day. I never realized I would be one of those old men studying through the Scriptures. But I didn't get it. And then I gave my heart to Jesus. Well, prior to that, I kind of came to the end of myself. Just like Eutychus. Truly came to the end of himself. Right out the window, three stories down, and he was dead as a doornail. And for those who will put one foot in the church and one foot out into the window of the world, you're not going to understand the word. You're going to get drowsy. But eventually, we're going to fall one way or the other. And if we fall out the window, if we come to the end of ourselves, there is hope because we can be raised to new life. Born again. Just like Eutychus, he's raised up. And then as the last verse says, verse 12, 12, they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. And so we will be, if we are born again, taken away. Alive and greatly comforted. And I see in this a parallel. I see it. I don't know if anyone else does, but 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Paul says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. And so I see in the story of Eutychus truly a picture of the raptured saint or the raptured church. But in this story, Paul fellowshipped all night long. He preached until midnight. But when Eutychus died and was raised, they came back upstairs, broke bread together, shared communion, and then just fellowshiped the rest of the night. You may recall from Sunday, the Greek word for talk with, he talked with them until morning, is hamileo, which means to commune with, to to be in company with, to associate with, to hang out, you know? And who hasn't had that time of hanging out with friends deep into the night, not wanting to go to bed because the fellowship is so good? Because the conversation is so sweet? Well, that was Paul. Now, verse 13, watch this. But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land, or literally on foot. So what's happening here is interesting to me. Paul could have gotten on the boat with the guys and sailed from Troas to Assos. Troas is on one side of a peninsula, Assos is on the other. It would take about uh, 30 miles to sail down and around by ship. It's about 20 miles to walk across they were going to take the ship and they had all that money and probably some bags and stuff so it would have made journeying across a little bit more of a headache. But Paul said, I'll tell you what guys, you sail around, I'm going to make the walk, I will see you there. And it begs the question, why? Why did Paul walk when he could have taken the boat? And it's a great prescription for us, gang. He walked to have a little downtime with Jesus. That's what I think. I can't prove it beyond the verse, but it doesn't make any other sense for Paul to walk when he could have ridden on the ship. He needed some time with Jesus. Paul, This is the third area of fellowship. Paul fellowshiped with the Lord. He fellowshiped on the journey. He fellowshiped all night long. And now Paul fellowships with the Lord. And I love that the Bible refers to faith as a walk. Faith is going on a walk. It's not a run, and it is not a standstill. It's a walk. It's ever-progressive. 2 Corinthians 5.7 We walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 5.16 Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Colossians 2.6 As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. 1 John 1, 7, and there are plenty of other verses. If we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship, right? One with another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. So Paul walked with the Lord to a sos. Rather than taking the ship with his friends. Now there's always time for fellowship. And fellowship is good with other believers and fellowship is important. But there are also times to get away and get alone with Jesus. And Paul chooses that here. And I want you to think about this. When things get oppositional in your life, when things get difficult or demanding or stressful or uncertain... One of the best things you can do is take a walk. It's good for your soul. Not souls. Soul. Take a walk. What are you talking about? I'm talking about a prayer walk. I'm talking about walking and talking with Jesus. Have you found that it's much easier to fall asleep when you're praying in bed at night? We have such good intentions. My prayer hour is going to be at bedtime. And it turns into a prayer of 30 seconds. Lord, I just want to thank you. Now that's cool. That's cool. I love falling asleep in my father's arms. Fall asleep praying. I don't think it bothers him in the least. My kids used to do that all the time. Fall asleep while we're talking. You know? You do that with me sometimes. Fall asleep when I'm talking. No, Paul had a choice here. Think about what just happened. He was up all night, fellowshipping, 24 hours at least since the last time he had been asleep. And then they come over and Paul says, you know what, you guys take the boat. He could have gotten on the boat and had a nice long nap. But he chose to walk and be with the Lord. Why? Because by walking, he would be awake. By walking, he would not pass out in the midst of prayer. Walking and talking, fellowshipping with the Lord. And if your prayer life needs a boost, perhaps you need to get out of the prayer closet and get out on the prayer path and walk with the Lord so you're awake, so you're vibrant, so you can hear from Him and speak with Him. Just an idea. That Paul goes walking across. And in verse 14, And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day at Chios. And the next day we crossed over to Samos. And the day following we came to Miletus. And over the sea we go, verse 16, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he would not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost now this is 50 days after Passover he's already missed Passover so he wants to get back for Pentecost so he's he's pounding out a trail getting there as quick as he can and he's going to sail right by Ephesus Paul as far as we know would never return to Ephesus again remember he spent three years there Three years growing and developing that church. Longer at Ephesus than at any other place in his missionary journeys. He loved the people of Ephesus. He wasn't trying to bypass it because they didn't like him. You know? Had enough Ephesus for one lifetime, thank you very much. No. He's bypassing because he knows if he goes to Ephesus, he's going to miss Pentecost. Because if he goes to Ephesus, he's going to stay there. He knows himself that well and he knows the Ephesians and he knows that he's not leaving if he goes there. He loves them too much. So, so Paul's going to bypass it. But verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. He's got to keep moving, but he just can't let Ephesus go. So he calls to the elders. It's about a 20-mile journey for them, so about a day's walk, a good walk. And they come. They'll come down and they meet with Paul there at Miletus. Now, before I share with you the rest of the chapter, which is his fond farewell to these elders, the last time he's going to see them and talk with them, I want you to think one more time about what the Bible has to say about elders. Now, I've said this a few times, but I want to be clear about this. Because there are all kinds of church traditions as to how to do leadership in the church. In the Bible, the words elder, presbyteros, and bishop or overseer, which is episkopos, and pastor, which is poimen or shepherd, poimen in the Greek, they are one and the same role. They are not three distinct roles. It's not Pope and Cardinals and Bishops and Priests and on down the line in a hierarchy. That's the human model, gang. Hierarchy is how we think. God calls us to a lowarchy, (laughs) if you will. He calls us to humility. He calls us to service. He says if you want to be great, be least. He calls leadership in the church to be a leadership of shepherding. And shepherds were the lowest class in Israel. It's so interesting to me throughout the Bible how God refers to Himself as a shepherd of Israel. How He called David the shepherd king. Called him from shepherding in the hills of Bethlehem to come and shepherd His people Israel. How Jesus Christ refers to Himself as the good shepherd. And so, leadership in the church is not a hierarchy. It's not an elected office. It is a role of service and elders, bishops, and pastors, it's all an interchangeable word. Look down at verse 28. Verse 28, where Paul is talking to the elders. Note that. He's talking to the elders from Ephesus. Verse 17 tells us. And in verse 28 he says, Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, to shepherd poimen, The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. you get it? Paul's talking to the elders, and he tells them to oversee the church and to pastor it. He uses all three words to to refer to the same group of men. It's so important we understand that. It's so simple, it's so basic, and yet the church across 2,000 years has developed, like I said, hierarchy. It's three aspects of the same role. The elder aspect simply describes maturity. A reason why someone will be called an elder is you don't want a 16 year old leading the church. No offense to the 16 year olds. And I admit, it might be a lot of fun to have a teenager in charge of the church. It would be a roller coaster ride. I promise you that. But it requires maturity. And so, an elder, it's the maturity in the fellowship. Bishop describes the management of the fellowship. Okay, those who oversee and who take care of administrative stuff and stuff no one else really wants to do anyway. Honestly, do you want to sit in a finance meeting? I don't. The management of the church. And thirdly, pastor. So we have elder, the maturity, bishop, the management. And then pastor is the mentality. Or shepherd is the mentality. Which is to feed, to care for, and to shepherd the flock of God. Of which, by the way, a shepherd is a part. That's what's interesting is the shepherd is the sheep. The shepherd's a sheep as well as being a shepherd. The under-shepherds, the human shepherds, are all sheep in the fellowship. No better than anyone else. Again, no hierarchy. Just part of the body. Part of the flock but also called by God as under shepherds of the chief shepherd Jesus to love in the body. Peter will say the same thing. He picks up on it first Peter chapter 5 verse 1. I therefore exhort the elders presbyteros among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed shepherd pastor the flock of God among you exercising oversight Episcopos. Under, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And so he says, shepherd the flock. Now, after journeying, after fellowshipping on the journey, and then fellowshipping all night long in Triza, and then fellowshipping with the Lord, number four, Paul now fellowships with the shepherds. Fellowships with the shepherds. And what we get here in the rest of the chapter is an absolutely beautiful, passionate, powerful, Proclamation of ministry. In fact, I think it's like a ministry, a mini ministry conference right here. All in one. You're gonna get it tonight. Here we go. Verse 18. When they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Fellowship. He says, serving the Lord. With all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. From day one, Paul says, I was with you serving the Lord. And that's how you do it. That's how you do what? That's how you serve the Lord. You ever ask that question? How do you serve God? How do you go about puny human that you are, no offense, but really, how do you serve God? You think by showing up and sitting in seats, we're serving the Lord? We're honoring Him? We're worshiping Him. As we take in His Word, our faith deepens in Him. But how do we serve the Lord? By serving up the Gospel of Jesus Christ. By doing what Paul did. Which is being both with believers and non-believers alike. Teaching the Word of God. Sharing the Gospel of Jesus. Sharing our very lives Serving up the gospel. By serving the gospel, you serve the giver of the gospel, the Lord Himself. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 9, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I made mention of you. That's a key verse. I serve Him in the spirit in the preaching of the gospel. That's how you serve the Lord. And Paul says, I did it publicly, and I did it from house to house. That is personally. Publicly in the school of Tyrannus. Tyrannus Rex. Remember we talked about him, the philosopher. In Ephesus. Had a school of philosophy, and Paul taught out of that school in the heat of the day. But he taught publicly. For anyone who wanted to come. And he also taught, he says here, house to house. So he taught personally. And you know what I found? And I, it took me a long time to learn this. That you don't change the message for the audience. You don't change the message for the audience. Now this is something we've seen in church leadership circles over the last 15, 20, 30 years really, where people have tried to figure out how to target an audience. Who's your target audience? I've been asked that question, you know, in ministry training. Who's your target audience? Be sure you meet your target audience where they are. And I reject that. You don't change the message to meet the audience. The message is what the message is. It stays the same. It doesn't matter if they're believers. It doesn't matter if they're brand new believers or old, old time believers. It doesn't matter if they're non-believers. The message is Jesus. Amen. The message is the same. The message is unchanging. And I can teach Revelation to a non-believer. And I can teach Leviticus to a non-believer. And I can teach the Gospel of John to a non-believer. It's all the message of God. It's all the Word of God. And it is all valuable to anyone who would receive Jesus. Because you see, Jesus is in Leviticus. As much as He's in Revelation and the Gospel of John. He is throughout the Scriptures. You don't change the message. What was the message of the angels to Joseph? <laughs> Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the angel said, actually it wasn't even to Joseph, it was to the Bethlehem shepherds. He said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news, the Gospel, of great joy, which will be for all the people. For who? For who? Well, for a certain target audience, we have good news of great joy. No, for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. It is good news to the lost and it is great joy to the saved. Amen. And so you stick to the message. And Paul taught here. He, he says, I taught you repentance and faith, repentance to God, faith in God, and he says, and I did it with tears, many tears and with trials. Well, that's not very manly. It is in the church. Jesus wept. I know it because it's the shortest verse in Scripture and it's the first one I memorized as a young man. <laughs> it's not unmanly or, or, or weak to weep. It really depends on what you're weeping about. Paul did this with tears, which meant there were times he was with those shepherds because he's talking to a bunch of guys and together they were weeping. That's some serious passion for a people. And I'm reminded that the Bible says in Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Hey, weeping's part of the deal game. Psalm 126, verse 6 says, He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You weep over the evangelism. You weep over the gospel. You weep over the lost. All the time you're spreading seed and weeping because you know some of the seed is not going to be received. And some is going to be received, but thorns are going to grow up around it and choke it out. And some is going to land on the hard ground and Satan's immediately going to come and pick it away. But some's going to get into good soil. And either way, you weep you weep with the seed and you bring in the sheaves. Such a powerful verse. Psalm 126, verse 6. That's one to memorize. And I truly wonder how many sheaves will be carried in by Paul's tearful ministry after 2,000 years. You think about the life of Paul and the impact one person had for the sake of the Gospel that he would have no idea except that he did say this, 1 Thessalonians 2.19 For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? I love that picture. A picture of a people as a crown. A crown of people. Surrounding Paul. Who is that crown? All those who were saved through his ministry. And I guarantee you, Paul's going to have one big, fat crown. It's going to be huge. Thing is, they're not going to be looking at Paul. They're going to be looking at Jesus. And Paul will too. Verse 22, so he he continues on. He says, this was a, a passionate thing, and now verse 22, Behold, bound by the Spirit... I'm on my way to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. And many commentators believe that Paul said that thinking, I want to go to Jerusalem and be crucified just like Jesus. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now think about that. Everywhere he goes believers are telling him by the Holy Spirit Paul You need to not go back to Jerusalem. You need to stay out of Jerusalem. Because if you go there, you're going to be bound. You're going to be imprisoned. Don't go. Everywhere Paul had been going throughout Asia, he's been hearing this from believers by the Spirit of the Lord. And he says in verse 24, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. How can a person not consider their life of any account? Do you? I mean, if we're being completely honest with one another, can you honestly say, my life doesn't matter to me? It doesn't. You know, what happens to me happens no big. The truth is, for every one of us, I think we go, it matters a little. <laughs> you know, I, I, I kind of want it to matter. And you know how you know for sure that your life matters to you when the doctor calls and it's not good news. What's your reaction? I learned yesterday my mother was in the hospital. High blood pressure kind of freaking out. There were enzymes kicking out in the, in the, in the blood test that didn't look right, and, and the blood pressure was shooting through the roof, and she's home, she's fine, but she was panicked. I'll tell you what, the last thing you want when you have high blood pressure is to panic. Right? And I was talking to her last night, and we were laughing and sharing and, and all that, but You know what? Our first reaction when we start to think that our life is threatened in any way is (sighs) and there it is. I do consider my life to be of some account. But Paul says, I don't. And I believe him. It's not that he has a death wish. It's not that Paul is suicidal. Not in the least. But I'll tell you what. Paul had something that most of us don't. He had an appreciation of heaven. You remember Paul talked about a man who was caught up to the third heaven? That is the place in Jewish thought where God dwells. The third heaven is what we would consider heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 2 through 4, he talks about this man who was caught up to the third heaven and saw things inexpressible, things that a man is not even permitted to speak, Paul says. I saw this. <laughs> No wonder he had such an appreciation of heaven. No wonder he considered his own life of no account. It didn't matter. And when sickness or death come knocking at our door, when we Christians find our hearts fluttering and failing, truly it's because we're still holding on too tight to this life. And I pray, I do pray, to be more heavenly minded. Oh, Lord, make me more heavenly minded. Amen. Remind me daily, hourly, moment by moment. Keep my eyes fixed on heaven. You know, Jesus said, and this is the mini version of the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus turned His gaze toward His disciples and He began to say, Blessed are you who are poor. What? He said, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Heaven. That's how you can consider your life of no account. It's not that you're not faithful. It's not that you're not wanting to be used by the Lord. It's just to live is Christ, to die is gain. So, whichever one you want, Lord, I'm good with. And we get there by being more heavenly minded. Paul was, man, he was bound and determined to take the Gospel all the way to the end even if it meant his death that he might receive resurrection from the dead bound and determined that is what we're going to talk about on Sunday morning verse 25 and now behold I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face I love that he's been preaching the kingdom because to preach Jesus is to preach the kingdom To preach the king is to preach the kingdom. Jesus, first words out of his mouth back in Matthew chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist before him, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a kingdom thing, gang. And we are a part of a kingdom. I heard today that the Islamic Caliphate, ISIS, they are now a caliphate. They're the first caliphate in 90 years. And it should be unsettling because Muslims the world over are commanded by the Quran to bend the knee to the caliphate. And the worry among those who are watching these things, you know, among strategic analysts, the FBI, CIA, Secret Service, those who are keeping an eye on these things, the worry is that There's this actual caliphate in the Middle East again, so Muslims anywhere may act out like those in Paris did for the sake of the caliphate. Let me tell you something that I know with absolute certainty. There is no caliphate of heaven. There is no caliphate that will last into eternity. But there is a kingdom. And it is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom John the Baptist talked about. The kingdom Jesus came to proclaim and present in, in Himself. And the very kingdom that Paul is now preaching, the kingdom. He says, but I'm not going to see you face to face any longer. Verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. What does that mean? Does he mean he, he's no longer guilty for the death of Stephen or for the death perhaps of other Christians or for putting Christians to jail back before... No, I, that's not. I don't believe that's what he's talking about. Because honestly, when Paul gave his life to Jesus, he was free and clear from all of that. Grace cleansed him completely. He knows that. He knew that. He writes about that. But when he says here, I am free from the blood of all men, I think he's talking about, well... The charge of the watchman. Ezekiel's charge. Let me just read this to you quickly. Ezekiel 33, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning... And a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but does not take warning, his blood will be on himself. But he had taken warning, had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But, God says, if the watchman sees the sword coming, and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, that is the watchman, and his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. And God says, Ezekiel, I appointed you a watchman over Israel. What does that mean? It means you better tell them everything I tell you to tell them. Because if you don't and they die in their sins, their blood is on your head. The call of the watchman. If you tell them what I tell you to tell them and they die in their sins, their blood is on their head. But if you don't tell them what you know to tell them, they're your responsibility, Ezekiel. And I think that's what Paul's referring to. I am not guilty. I am guiltless. I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? For, he says in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul could say, I was the watchman on the wall. And for the three years I was with you in Ephesus, he's talking to the shepherds, I didn't shrink back from declaring any of the whole purpose of God. I like the King James translation of that verse. I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel, the whole purpose, either way, what is being talked about, what Paul is declaring here is the law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, Genesis through Malachi, the scriptures. What did Paul do for three years in Ephesus? He taught the Word. Genesis through Malachi. Not Genesis through Revelation because the New Testament wasn't written yet. In fact, Paul was writing some of it at that time. <laughs> but he taught the whole Word. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, like, you know, the books. He taught them all. Because... Jesus is in every one. And he's preaching Jesus, and he's preaching the kingdom, and he's declaring the whole counsel of the word of God. And by the way, that's why we do it at the bridge. Paul did it in three years, we've taken (laughs) twelve to go through the Hebrew scriptures. I'm a little slower. Paul had every day too, so come on, cut me some slack here. He taught through the Bible. And you know what I love about declaring the whole counsel of the Word of God? And I love that our youth pastors are doing the same thing, by the way. You know what I love about it? I don't pick the topics. God does. We don't talk about what Rick wants to talk about. We talk about what God wants to talk about, which just so happened tonight to be Acts chapter 20. I don't know why. He just said, teach it. Okay. And it, it's so easy, but it's also so profound because now we get to hear from the Lord and not from the design of a pastor or a person. So Paul declared the whole counsel of the Word of God. What did Jesus say? Matthew 28.20 in the Great Commission, He said, Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And there are some church leaders I'd love to say that to. He didn't say, Teach them to observe the letters of Paul. Teach them to observe certain selected scriptures that support your topical sermons. He said, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, what does that include? The Bible. There's nothing in here that we shouldn't be paying attention to. There's nothing in here that is not worth our time, our effort, our learning, our understanding. And Jesus is in these pages. And you know what I've understood over the years especially since we started the bridge that the more I learn get this the lighter the load I would have thought it the other way around I would have thought the more you learn the heavier it gets because the more you got to remember and the more stuff there is to carry and the more laws and and requirements and and it's just going to get heavier so I'd rather just read John 3.16 and be done (laughs) now The more you are in the Word of God, the lighter the load will be in your life. It's remarkable. The greater the grace, or at least the greater our our appreciation of God's grace. Now, Paul sounds the alarm for these shepherds in the next verse, verse 28. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He has purchased with His own blood. Now you got to check the flow out here. Paul says, I didn't shun to declare unto you the whole counsel of the Word of God. And then he says, I want you to do the same. Where does he say that? He says, shepherd the flock of God. The phrase shepherd, poeman, pastor, is most literally translated feed feed the flock that's why the word shepherd is what it is because a shepherd feeds the flock feed the flock teach the flock keep them in the word and a reminder by the way not only to shepherds but to all of us is what I said before we are all part of the flock because the flock belongs to God it doesn't belong to any human we're just all sheep together and Peter said in 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You were purchased, he says, with precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Here Paul says, the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. That's very interesting to me. He doesn't say... Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd to feed the church of God which He purchased with Jesus' blood. He said, You be on guard for the church of God which He purchased with His blood. Whose blood? God's blood. Because the blood of Jesus is the blood of God. Paul's clear about this. And the highest price ever paid. The only price that could ever save is the blood of Jesus. This this flock, less Jake, any of our other shepherds who happen to be here tonight, this flock is not our flock. This flock is part of the larger flock that is God's flock. Because He bought this flock with His blood. I didn't. I didn't die for you. But He did. You didn't shed a single drop of blood for any other believer. Jesus did. The Good Shepherd. But we can take a lesson from god 's promise to israel' future when he said jeremiah three fifteen I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding, and so that 's a shepherd 's primary role is to feed the flock on knowledge and understanding. A wise under shepherd 's going to do that well verse twenty nine paul 's warning them he, he says, I know." you got to feed them. you got to keep feeding them. Because I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And this is most staggering. Verse 30, And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. From among your own selves... This is the pattern of false teachers. And brothers and sisters of the church of the last days, little flock, we got to keep our eyes open for the false teachers. Not to be paranoid, but to be prepared. Because there are plenty of false teachers on the airwaves and in churches today. And Paul says they're going to arise from among yourselves. And here's the pattern. False teachers look like sheep. They don't look like grandma with big eyes and big ears and big teeth. They look like sheep. They dress like sheep. They act like sheep. And they kill sheep. And that's what the false teacher does. You're never going to see a false teacher stand up and go, I'm a false teacher in the way of Antichrist. My message is heresy. Just giving you a little heads up. They will look, smell, act like sheep. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.13, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Which means Satan looks good. And the things that Satan presents to us looks good. Or we wouldn't be enticed. Therefore Paul says 2 Corinthians 11:15 it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds and here's just a quick thing about false teachers you know how you can tell a false teacher first of all you can't tell them much but but you know you know how to tell who a false prophet a false teacher is listen their teaching is never free There are always strings attached. The false teacher will always bring with his teaching, with her teaching, requirements for you. You want to know how I'm not a false teacher? Because you can come to the bridge or not. You can be involved. I've told this to people. Hey, come on Wednesday night for Bible study and then go serve at your church on Sunday morning if if you want to do that. Because I've had people show up from other churches going, hey, we like being in the Word, but we're not really getting that, but we really feel like we're called to serve at our church. And so, can we come here? I'm like, yeah! Well, are we supposed to tithe? (laughs) That's between you and God. The false teacher charges. It's always strings attached, and usually the strings are purse strings. Usually there's money involved somehow. 2 Peter 2 verse 3, he says, In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They'll draw you along, get you to a certain point, and then start asking for money. Remember when the Beatles went to see the Maharishi in India back in the 60s? You know why they left the Maharishi's ashram in India? Why they came back to the United States? They were so disillusioned. They went out there searching for truth and the Maharishi started to talk to them how they needed to, uh, give a tithe off their next album sale. Which was millions. And when they started seeing that what he wanted out of them was money, they left. False teacher. Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus said, "Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing." That's what Paul's saying. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Jesus says in verse nineteen, Matthew chapter seven, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Look at what's produced. Look at what comes out of the teaching. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Paul saying, be careful, be alert. Keep your eyes open, because from among you, false teachers will arise. Verse 31. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And again, admonishment with tears. Weeping even over the message. I read that, and then I read it again. Admonishing with tears. What do you mean, Paul? And I read it again. And as I read over and over this afternoon, I began to understand, I think a little bit of what Paul said is talking about. Imagine how hard it was for Paul to go church to church, plant a church, stay there a few months or maybe a few years, and then leave. I'm leaving them in your care, Jesus. They're all yours, Lord. You realize there's no control in that? And I get this. And I can share with you all the greatest concern I have for this fellowship and for individual people in it is that you might be deceived. And it gets under my skin sometimes. It did on Sunday. Second service especially. It burdens my heart when I when I hear people say things or, or espouse things or believe things that are ungodly. And I know they are. And it's not because I'm all righteous. It's probably because I've experienced that stupid thing. And when I see people following false teachers in the world unwittingly. And, and I may even say something about this on Sunday again, just to those who are here second service, but it riles me up. I think I said something to the effect of, I don't give a rip what your opinion is. I only give a rip about what God's opinion is in the Scriptures. And what I mean by that is... I, it's not that I don't care what people have to say or what people's ideas or thoughts are. It's not that I don't have deep love for this fellowship. It's because our opinions really are not what matter here. It's, it's the Word of God. And it's the opinions of man, the opinions of woman that get us in trouble. Paul says, I admonish you with tears. The burden was great. All he wants is for people to get saved. You want to know what my agenda is? I'll tell you honestly. I want you to go to heaven. Amen. I want to be there. And that's it. That really is it. Now, here's the good news. There is a message powerful in its delivery that outweighs all of the false religious or even irreligious teachings of the world. And it is the message of grace. And Paul says in verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. Man, circle that in your Bibles. Highlight it, underline it, star it, put little crosses by it, whatever it takes to draw your attention to that. I commend you. He says, To God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Works won't do it. Good deeds will never be enough. Hard study will not get you there. Your deeds, your toil, your perseverance. Which, by the way, is what Jesus says to Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. I know your deeds. I know your toil. I know your your perseverance. I get it. I know how you can't stand the false teachers. You've done well, but you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten the love aspect of this. See, that's grace. Grace is what saves. The love of God, as as shown, as seen in Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 1 17. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of works, so that no man may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's grace, it's grace. And grace, as Paul is saying, builds up, and grace sanctifies, and grace ensures inheritance. It does all of this, he says in verse 32. Because it is the full expression of the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And no false teaching can touch it. The grace of Jesus is so profound and so powerful that all the false teachings of the world just fall apart when compared to grace. Islam's not teaching grace, my friends. Hinduism? isn't teaching grace. Buddhism, you're not going to find grace there. You're not going to find grace in all the Eastern mysticism. You will not find grace in atheism or agnosticism. You won't even find grace in Judaism because Judaism is under the law. Which without grace is a heavy thing. The law was added so sin would increase. But where sin increased, Paul says grace abounds all the more the message of grace Paul says in Romans 5 8 God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood we will be saved from the wrath of God through him well verse 33 Paul says I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes that's kind of out of left field no he's saying I'm not a false teacher I didn't want anything from you. I didn't come to get anything from you. All I came to do was bring you the message of grace. He says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He Himself said, and I quote, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And it is. It is more blessed to give than to receive, Jesus says. Where did Jesus say that? Can you quote the verse out of the Gospels where Jesus said that, anyone? It's not in there. Paul right here says, Jesus Himself said, "...it is more blessed to give than to receive." And you will not find that sentence anywhere in the Gospels. What does that mean, Rick? Well, John told us at the end of his book that he did and said more things than could possibly even be written. All the libraries and all the books in the world couldn't hold all the things that Jesus did. So it's not a surprise that Paul's mentioning something Jesus said that we don't see in one of the four Gospels. But I am so thankful Paul spoke these words. Luke heard them and wrote them down because we wouldn't have known them otherwise. We wouldn't have heard that Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And it truly is. You will find in your giving, you will find in your giving to the Lord more blessing than you will ever find in any amount of money you can receive by working hard. By paycheck, Trust me on this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And the more you give to the work of the kingdom, and I've said this before, if you never give a dollar to the Bridge Fellowship, but you are faithful in giving to the kingdom work, fantastic. That's great with me. Because it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you will be blessed and your faith will increase And you will find what the early church found. Obviously, the early church had heard these words, repeated them to each other. Remember, Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Obviously, Paul knew these words, perhaps had heard them directly from Jesus himself. And as Paul going Gentile church to Gentile church to Gentile church, collecting money to take to Jerusalem, not for himself, but to Jerusalem, he's going around going, hey, you know, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And in your giving, you're going to be so blessed. God's going to pour out an abundance so that you can give more. And then he'll pour out more so that you can give more, and he'll pour out more because you cannot outgive God. More blessed to give than to receive. And by the way, the best way to enjoy Thanksgiving tomorrow is not to take another plate full of mashed potatoes and candy jams with the little melted marshmallows on top. It's my favorite. <laughs> best way to enjoy the day tomorrow is to give find a way to give give something to someone tomorrow and see how it blesses your day well verse 36 we'll finish when he had said these things he knelt down and prayed with them all and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him these are men it's not a gross thing these guys loved each other these kisses were holy kisses. This affection was brotherly and true. I love this scene. Lord of the Rings. Right? In the, in the Fellowship of the Ring. Right at the end of the movie. And Aragorn is standing there and he's, and he's le- leaning over. What's his name? Boromir. Boromir's flat on the ground. He's got orc arrows all in his body. This is so biblical. I love it. And he's lying there dying. And it is the most touching scene in that entire film. Aragorn, the other man, so these two men, these two brothers who had fought together and stood together and and journeyed together. And Boromir's lying and he's dying on the ground. And and, man, Aragorn's eyes are filled with tears. He's got the dirt and the sweat from battle all over his face, but he's looking at his brother who's dying before him and he leans over him and Boromir says, I would have gone with you. To the end, my captain. Oh, it's a great scene. (laughs) And he dies. And Aragorn leans over and kisses him on the forehead. And it is the most manly, masculine, brotherly scene I think I've ever seen in a movie. And that's the idea here. These guys have tears streaming down their face. They're hugging on Paul. They're kissing Paul's cheeks. They're saying, we love you, brother. We don't like the idea that we might never see you again. They began, verse 37, to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they were accompanying him to the ship. What a fond farewell. And Paul is on his way. But he's on his way in this fellowship. And the chapter is full of fellowship. It is overflowing with the love of the body of the flock of Jesus Christ. And what I think we see in this chapter is the thing that connects and creates and develops that kind of fellowship, that kind of affection, that kind of love, more than anything else, is serving the Lord together. Serving the Lord together. If you are not involved in ministry. If you're not involved in ministry with other believers, you are missing out on the joy of fellowship. There is nothing like serving the Lord together to build that kind of bond. Father, thank You so much. Your wisdom is astounding. The whole plan You had for the ecclesia, the called out, You call us to be born again. You call us to new life. You save us. You sanctify us. And Lord, that would be enough. But then you said, you know, I'll call the church. And you put us together. And what a marvelous thing because we're so different. (laughs) We have such different likes and and interests and backgrounds and, and even traditions. And yet you call us together by your Word by the unity of the Spirit, and through serving You, and we experience family like we can experience nowhere else. Praise Your name, Lord. We thank You. We are so grateful to You for all that You've done. And we thank You, Lord, on this Thanksgiving Eve, we thank You for this fellowship. Help us to grow together in unity, in love, in affection, as we serve You, Lord, with all humility. In Jesus' name, Amen.